This is How I Got Here, a podcast where we interview professionals about how they navigated the twists and turns of their careers. We hope these conversations can help you figure out where you want to go and how you'll get there. We're your hosts. I'm Lara Mitra. And I'm Eric Eliason. In each episode, we'll first give you a quick intro about who we are speaking with, and then we'll dive into the interview. To stay up to date, follow How I Got Here on LinkedIn and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. We hope you enjoy. A common career trope we hear constantly is to pick something, anything really, and focus entirely on it from the earliest age possible. Work 10,000 hours and you'll achieve success, or something of the like. Recently, I've been reading Range by David Epstein, who pushes back on this. He argues that having a diverse set of experiences actually makes us better in the modern working world. In fact, it's important to explore and sample, because if you stick with something you don't like, you'll end up not only unhappy, but failing to achieve your full potential. Our guest today is an amazing case study of this winding and exploratory approach. Natalie McCullough, currently the President and Chief Commercial Officer at Guild Education, didn't start her career off in business. In fact, her first job out of college was as a geologist, doing environmental assessments on groundwater contamination. In this episode, Natalie shares her winding career journey from geologist, to bike guide, to management consultant, to finally where she is today, an executive business leader at a mission-driven company, helping frontline employees get more education affordably. My name is Natalie McCullough, and I am the President and Chief Commercial Officer at Guild Education. Natalie, we wanted to start this interview off by talking about your college major. You went to Stanford for undergrad and studied geology. What drew you to that? It seems like a pretty unique major. Yes. Uh, And in preparing for this podcast, I had to decide whether I was going to tell the real story or not. So I'm going to tell the real, the real slightly embarrassing story. So I I came to Stanford as a science and math kind of geek, pre-med. And, you know, back then, I, I often think about the difference in how much information is available. Like there just really was so little information about what career opportunities were. So if you were a science and math person, you know, pre-med was sort of the obvious choice. So anyway, I got to Stanford and I did that for my first couple of years. And then, you know, really realized that I just actually had no desire to be a doctor, um, uh, that I had just defaulted into it really. And so I can remember very clearly lying on the couch at I think my grandparents' house on spring break or something and getting this dear undeclared junior letter from Stanford. <laughs> it was sort of like, they were like, it's time, it's time for you to declare. And at the end of the day, I had done all these math and science requirements and I had taken a little bit, I dabbled in geology and really found it interesting. And I was a huge, personally, I was like a huge outdoors fan. I had done mm-hmm. Outward Bound and National Outdoor Leadership School. And I was teaching this class called Wilderness Skills. And it was just like this nice opportunity in my mind to do science outdoors and combine something that I loved with something that I thought I was good at. And so that's how I made my decision, pushed <laughs> along by Stanford's Dear Undeclared Junior uh, process. I can very much relate to that. I was pre-med undergrad at Stanford and got that exact same letter junior year. There you go. They're still doing it then. They're still doing it. Yes. And the the letter included the big fine I would have to pay if if I missed the deadline to declare. So can you, can you give us a sense of, of what 
what does it mean to be a geologist in, in everyday practice? Yeah, so um, I mean, geology majors can go into a lot of different jobs. The job that I went into, which was also connected to my an interest in the environmental conservation and the environment was I went to a company called Dames and Moore, uh, which no longer exists. It was acquired, but it was a pretty big um, environmental consulting and geotechnical engineering consulting firm. And I did environmental assessments. So for example, when the Presidio here in San Francisco was transferred from the army to the National Park Service, each of those organizations hired a consulting firm like ours to do a full environmental assessment around soil and groundwater contamination, you know, lead-based paint, asbestos, the works. So I, I literally drove around the Presidio for three months and sampled all soil, groundwater, paint, all tap water, et cetera, from every single building <laughs> in the Presidio. What did you think of the work? Did you like it? <laughs> it, it was a very typical of, I think, a, 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 of a classic first job out of college. So there was a lot of repetitive work and not terribly intellectually challenging. And that's not to say I was acing it. You know, I didn't know how to do everything, but it wasn't really all that fun. There were fun elements of it. What I ended up, but I can remember my mom very clearly sort of convincing me not to quit many, many times, sort of a stick to it, have persistence message. But I did ultimately get promoted from a staff geologist to a project geologist. And that was when I started to manage projects and manage clients. And that's when sort of the light bulbs started to go off for me. I realized that, that I was way more interested in that side of the work than I was in the, the sort of sampling and analysis and report writing. In the early part of your career, in addition to being a geologist, we know that you spent 15 months leading hiking and biking trips all around the world, which just sounds like a, a dream role to me. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what it was like? Yeah, that was a really um, fun rotation, I guess I would say, in my career. I went and I worked for a cool company called Backroads out of Berkeley and um, had the good fortune to lead biking, hiking, and multi-sport trips all over the world. So very, very fancy biking trips in the Loire Valley in France, and then very rugged um, multi-sport mountain biking, hiking, sea kayaking trips in um, the Baja Peninsula, where wow. sometimes we were camping. So it was, it was an incredible uh, contrast of these Verlaine Chateau hotels in the Loire Valley and then, you know, camping on the beach in, in the Baja. But I, um, I, I loved it. And it, it was, it was, I like to say that it was the hardest job I ever had. Harder than McKinsey <laughs> by a long shot. <laughs> what made it so hard? What, what's the story of uh, an example? It's a, a whole body, whole personality kind of job. Um, so on the one hand, you are logistically responsible for 26 people, you and your partner, and making sure that, that the whole trip works smoothly. Um, and, and then on the other side, like physically, you're, it's very challenging, especially on the, some of the really hard biking trips. You could be biking you know, 80 to 100 miles a day. Um, 
and you don't get to be the person who's like, oh my God, I'm so tired, right? You have to be cheery. (laughs) Well, and that's the third part of the job is then you have to be the host and make sure everybody is having a good time and that the group is gelling. And probably that last part was my steepest, you know, challenge and growth curve as someone who might trend a little more introverted Mm -hmm. to be on my feet all day long and then have to show up at dinner and make sure that dinner conversation was interesting and effective. It really, really was draining. Um, but I also, I learned a ton and it actually was very valuable skill set for, for the rest of my career. It reminds me of watching, I mean, now in, in quarantine, I'm doing more online workouts and the fitness instructors doing the same workout that I am just totally floored and panting right. and sweating. And they're just keeping their composure, keeping the energy high. I don't know how they do it. Yes. Yeah. Peloton favorites, Peloton heroes. Yes, exactly. So to recap a bit, you were a geologist and that was your first job out of college. And you had this revelation about, you know, what you liked and and what you didn't like in a job. And then you got to do this bike guide role that put you out of your comfort zone and, and led to even more learning about yourself. And at this point in your career, you then decide to go to business school what were you trying to get out of your time at business school and out of that experience? I think that I'm trying to remember what the honest answer is to that. Um, but I think that for me, business school was really a jumping off point. It was an opportunity to really broaden my horizons of what would be possible for me and the avenues that would be open to me versus trying to auger deeper into this, this place that I had started Right. I I knew that I was headed down a path that I didn't really want to go that far down. So in many ways, business school was like a reset moment to open up the world of possibility again. And um, and also, since I was coming to business school without a business background, unlike the consultants and the bankers who show up there, I thought. I was, I loved literally everything we were learning. I thought it was so interesting and cool. It was like the five C's sort of like blew my mind. And, and um, the con- I found the content and the classes really engaging and interesting because it was new. I'm curious, just to go back on something you had said earlier, you know, you have this passion for the outdoors and being a geologist, you kind of were able to be outdoors, but it didn't fully, it sounds like it wasn't the perfect fit for you job wise. So I'm curious when you were thinking about the job, were you not attracted to do something that was related to the environment or outdoors again, or were you open to that, but you wanted to try new things? I, I think that's a very tough uh, bullseye to frankly, like hit. There aren't that many jobs that are intellect truly deeply intellectually challenging where you can have impact on a major scale that also happened to let you hike around the mountains all day long (laughs) so (laughs) i that was a tough reality that i had to face and um yeah kind of not to go out of sequence but to fast forward a little bit you know later in my career i did a sabbatical for a year and i did take another run at hey, is there a job here that connects this passion for the outdoors with a meaningful role where I could have impact and, and, and advance my career? And I ultimately ended up deciding that I needed to really bifurcate that, that I, that I could do nonprofit work. Mm-hmm. And that's when I joined the board of Outward Bound, but that my, my professional work was going to be you know, more strictly professional. And, and, I, and I, took, I separated them at mm-hmm. that point. 
And ultimately, for your professional work, you chose to work at McKinsey, a management consulting firm, after you finished up at business school. What were your first impressions of that job? I think I was probably so sleep deprived. I don't remember them. <laughs> but uh, I do remember one very funny story of my one of my first engagement managers had asked me to do something. And um, I was like, okay, great. And then she came back two hours later. And she was like, okay, is it done? And, and I remember being like, oh, you meant like right now? <laughs> because normal jobs are not like that, right? Like right. things come into your inbox, you you work on them for a few days and then they sort of move out. And it, But in consulting, like the pace was so fast, right? And it's um, uh, that level of high intensity, high pace collaboration. I, I definitely had to sort of adjust um, to 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 get used to that but I I did end up loving it and I stayed there for almost six years so it was a good fit for me. I'm curious during your time at McKinsey did you find that you were able to use some of the things you learned as a as a geologist was this still coming back up or did you feel like you know you've developed a whole new skill set and that was sort of behind you? Yeah, I think that's the difference between skills and knowledge, like the Mm. knowledge that I learned from geology was I other than some fun facts on hikes with people, (laughs) but the skills, I think the skills all the way through my career have been very additive. So that geology work was a lot of analysis and communication and clear synthesis and writing. And then we talked about the skills from the backroads jobs around like being social and and making people feel comfortable and getting people to open up. And then at consulting, you start to layer on just this whole other level of skill set around conceptual thinking and framing problems and influence. But I, but those are all additive, right? It certainly certainly helped a lot that I was good with numbers that I could could take a data set and analyze it and come out with a conclusion. I was wondering what's the story of like when you said yeah you know I've gotten enough from consulting and I want to move into a, a totally different totally different gig yeah so consulting um as you progress through consulting like the your your initial success is being really capable um as an analyst or an associate right good problem solver good communicator and then you become an engagement manager and that's about managing teams managing projects managing clients and then when you become a partner or a junior partner um, it flips a little bit more into what you know into your domain knowledge right and so when i was uh, at that level as a junior partner at mckinsey i was sort of positioned myself and had risen on a lot of go-to-market expertise. So growth strategies, marketing strategies, um, that kind of thing. And I, I just got very, I got to a place where I was sort of uncomfortable that I was giving people advice about something that I had never done. Mm. And I didn't feel authentic um, in it because it was apparent to me that the, the devil's in the details and it's one thing to have an idea about what should do. It's a totally another thing to actually make that a reality and execute it and get people to on board and all that stuff. And so I I had I just developed like a real urgency around becoming an operator and being able to do the work and get all the learning that would come from that. And getting a little bit more into that decision process, was that something like a revelation you had overnight or did it take, was it gradual and took time to develop? I'm curious how 
how you came to that conclusion and specifically that sense of urgency to leave, because I know it can be quite a pull to stay at a place like McKinsey or other management consulting firms. Yeah. I, I think these things sort of build over time. Like they start out as a little itch, if you will, or sort of a, a voice in your head that's like, hey, this this isn't quite right, you know, but you over you overpower that voice, you push through, you do the next thing, and then the voice kind of gets louder. And if you're if you're listening to yourself, the further away you get from your your true self or your values or your true north, um, that voice gets really loud. And then at some point you're like, okay, I, I now I need to do something about it. I do remember the the breaking point. And I'm, I'm pretty sure the very senior partner who, who did this won't listen to this. So I'll tell the story. <laughs> but I do remember I was, I was, I had like a one-year-old or very young child at this point, And I got a call that we were going to do this really crazy study for a big healthcare conglomerate, like what their 10-year healthcare strategy should be looking at every single trend in all of, you know, the world basically. And I needed to do that in two months. And, he, and I, my team was staffed with all new people. And I was just like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not spending my summer killing myself to do this unanswerable thing that will probably never get done. And I had to call him. He was at his lake house in Italy. And I was like, I quit. I'm really sorry. But <laughs> oh my not doing the project. And beyond that, I, it's time for me to leave. And he, he took it very graciously. But. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. So Natalie, we know that. So you, you, the straw broke the camel's back and you ended up going to work at a, a relatively early stage startup. And it sounds like you were trying to get real operation, uh, operator experience, operational experience. And I was wondering, did you feel resistance? Sometimes startups kind of are su- suspicious about bankers and consultants and that like, oh, you guys are just advisors. You don't have any real, um, yeah. I don't know. I was wondering, did you face that resistance and, and how did you overcome it if you did? Yeah. Oh, such a good question. Uh, the, the company I joined was quote unquote pre-IPO, although it took us about four years from the time I joined to go public. And I specifically wanted that stage. But I the job I took was working directly for the CEO and we crafted the role, we called it the vice president of strategy operations. And the notion was, it was an individual contributor role to start. And I was to do strategy. And then I was to figure out how to operationalize that strategy in the company. And I ended up doing that for about nine months before I sort of spun out into the business in a, a more, more of a PL type of accountability role. And I think that most consultants need a path that looks like that, where they can really leverage that skill set that they built in consulting for a period of time while they learn a business, and then they can find a functional home to really then start an upward career. And based on our research, it looked like you had six different roles while at Service Source that, including the ones you mentioned, and CMO and Chief Strategy Officer, among others. And was that something you advocated for yourself to get these different experiences so that you could have a diversity of functional experience? Or how did that how did that happen? Yeah, that that was a function of my own natural sort of pace of learning and and wanting to really really be always be on a steep learning curve um, and kind of and just also I mean more candidly just getting bored after a while in certain things and also the partnership that I developed with the CEO where 
um, I became sort of the trusted person that he could put into any given function when we were either needing to build it, build that capability seriously, or fix it where it was a little bit broken and he wanted somebody he could trust who would go in um, you know, from a first principle standpoint and say, okay, what do we need this function to do? What, where, where does it sit today in terms of the capabilities and, and how will we build out a team and process system structure, all the rest. So it, it was, I was very lucky to have that very strong partnership with the CEO for however many years that was, I think almost eight years. Um, and that's a big part of, of that sort of rotation, which at the end of the day, you know, when I left Service Source, I was I was able to say, you know, I've, I've pretty much held every single leadership role in the in the in the business side of a software business, like not not the product, not product and edge, but other than that, uh, I did it. And it sounds like you've been really intentional and thoughtful about you know what you wanted to be doing in your career in in this rotation and what type of experience you wanted to have. And I'm curious if you had or still and still have some sort of practice of like reflection or self-assessment to, to understand, you know, where you want to go forward and what you want to learn and what sorts of things you should do next. Well, the story always sounds better from, from the other side. So I think it's, uh, I, I don't want to be a con person here. Like I, I'm not sure that I really was that intentional about hmm. where I wanted to end up. You know, I was always actually very jealous of people who had this sort of path in mind that they were going to follow. Obviously, that wasn't me. I was a bike guide and a geologist and <laughs> a consultant. And then like, you know, it's just not a straight line. But some things did hold true. And I would say that whenever I was evaluating what I was going to do next, I had some criteria that's, that have held the test of time. So one of them has always been around learning and challenge. And I think even at this stage in my career, that's still a top criteria for me. Am I going into something where I'm going to learn, where I'm going to be challenged, there's going to be a new element to it. And then the second big area is around impact and believing that the work is important. And, and as I've gotten older, my sphere of what is important is bigger. You know, I want to do work that is actually meaningful in the world. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about where I'm at right now, my ability to do that at Guild. So challenge, learning, and impact. And then the other, the other big criteria, which again has gotten stronger over time is what I call the barbecue test, <laughs> which is, hey, do you, would you invite these people to your house for a barbecue? Um, cause, cause you spend a lot of time at work. You really, really do. And so doing it with people that you enjoy, that you trust, that you can be your authentic self with. Um, it's really important. And um, that's also something that I have that has sort of gone up on the criteria list for me over time. And so we do know that after eight years at Service Source, you did decide to leave. And I'm wondering what made you make that decision to then want to join another startup? Yeah, so that was when I referenced earlier the sabbatical I took. When I left Service Source, I did a, a sabbatical. I had I had done eight years there. I was really proud of the company that we built, but I was I was definitely ready for something new. And spent a year hanging out with my kids, thinking hard, you know, getting in shape, and really thinking about what I wanted my next step to be. And that's um, part of that. In addition to joining doing the board work that I signed up for at that point. Without were bound, I also decided that I wanted to do mission-driven um, 
professional work. And it, it, the mission didn't have to be, you know, save the dolphins, but it had to be a mission that I thought was interesting and, <laughs> yeah. and compelling. And so I was doing a fair bit of uh, advisory work for various CEOs and startups and uh, got connected with this one company and just got really sucked in intellectually into the problem that they were solving. So that the company was called Volumetrics. They were pioneering this new space called people analytics. And it was this notion that you could use data in HR and in people operations, just like CMOs were using data to make mm-hmm. consumer experience, you know, personalized and, and optimized. For me, the light bulbs just went off about the potential, in part because of my consulting background. I could just see where you would use this data all over the place. And the founder and the founding team like like double-checked the barbecue uh, <laughs> litmus test. You know, I was like instantly like jamming on ideas. And so I can remember very clearly I I had part of my advisory work, I'd sort of drawn out an org chart for this founder and said, oh, here's the org you need to build. And he sort of pushed it back across the table to me and he like circled the the CRO role I had created. He's like, what about you? Why don't you do that role? And at that point I was just hooked. I was hooked intellectually Mm. on the business problem. And I, and I felt very confident that I could have impact and that we would have impact as a business. And it was a much smaller company that I had ever been part of. It was only 25 people. Mm. Um, So it was a pretty big leap for me to join a series B really small company like that. Um, But it was incredible. Like I, like I, all those things that I said were on my criteria list, just, um, just really clicked. That's not to say it was easy. It was not easy at all. But I learned a lot and it was fun and it was ultimately very successful. We got bought by Microsoft um, within a year and we ended up building those products into very big products inside of Microsoft. After being acquired by Microsoft and staying there for a few productive years, what led you to start thinking about leaving and taking on your next role? So, I mean, Microsoft is an incredible company and it's doing incredibly well. But for, for me, I, I, that wasn't the right place for me to be inside of a company that was that large. I, I, um, I really thrive on a, a, a faster pace. I'm very oriented around being with customers and partners and kind of in the trenches. And when you're a leader inside of Microsoft, you spend most of your time internally focused. You know, there's a lot of stakeholder management at a large company. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it takes, it is a really um, very challenging and important skill set, but it's just not the skill set that I wanted really to get better at. So, and, and, and that was, that's not smart. That really is just listening to yourself. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure you guys have done those exercises where you sort of write down when you get joy in the day and when you find (laughs) your energy draining. And it was like, there were just too many of the days where I was like, oh, that was a draining day. (laughs) You know, I didn't get to do enough of those things that fill the bucket. So, so that, that whole journey actually was pretty crystallizing for me of like, no, no, this stage of company that I'm at right now is a really great stage. I, I don't think I will go back to a super small company again. It wasn't quite the right leverage model for me and what I can do, but I also don't want to be in a, in a mega company. So this growth stage that, uh, that Guild is at is, is really fun. Maybe to take a step back, I'm curious how you got connected with Guild or, or heard about it in the first place. What's the story of, of how you got introduced to the company? 
Yeah, I probably should make up a story here, but the, <laughs> the, the honest answer is a headhunter called me about it. And this is a headhunter firm that I that I have known for years. And the the recruiter like it was like one of those things where she had to like say her stuff really fast. She's like, I know we're not supposed to call you, but uh, but this is a thing that you really need to hear. Like this is the thing that you told us you would listen to, which is a mission-driven business that's changing the world. I, I, we have one of those for you. And I was like, oh, okay. No. <laughs> Are you sure this isn't like the next marketing application, you know, or whatever it is, but, um, but yeah, no, that's, that's how I found out about it. And then, and then I started meeting Rachel and the other members of the team and, and it was sort of all went from there. And for the listeners who aren't familiar, can you explain what Guild Education does? Yeah, so Guild is has created a marketplace for higher education. And we go to employers and we say, hey, today you might have a tuition reimbursement benefit. But the reality is that that's only taken advantage of by your white collar employees. And in many ways, that investment that you're making is not strategic. But if you come to the Guild Network and you think about differently about how education can be used for your business, we can use it to unlock a whole bunch of objectives that you have as an organization. So great example of this, Walmart is, is one of our largest uh, employer partners. And they have a program they call, um, their tagline is a dollar a day. So any employee at Walmart can get a college degree for a dollar a day. A oh, dollar wow. a day. Wow. Yeah, it's transformational. Um, and so that's that's the vision is how do we help all these frontline employees get education? It doesn't have to be a college degree. Sometimes they actually need a, a high school equivalency degree. Sometimes they need a, a certification. Uh, can be, you know, lo lots of things, but to create economic opportunity. What was exciting to you about Guild the Company or its mission? Yeah, I mean, I, I genuinely felt like Guild was the opportunity of a lifetime. Everything the company does is really tightly aligned around this mission of creating economic opportunity for America's workforce through education. And so that that combination of being able to wake up every day and have this true north of impact that I could really believe in and I could find and I find that mission has a lot of personal resonance for me um, and also frankly societal and political re resonance particularly now I believe that business needs to step up to solve some of the things that are that are tearing our country apart. This is not just a political problem. Um, and I think that we can be part of the that solution. Awesome. Is there anything else that um, you wanted to share that we haven't covered today that you think, yeah, you want to put out there? I don't know that I have any other pearls of wisdom. Um, except to say that anything that sounds like I had it all figured out as I was going through it is, uh, is some, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking. I think everybody is, is sort of figuring it out in real time on their own terms. And that's true at every stage in your career. I, I talked to a very, very successful person yesterday who's sort of wrestling with what she wants to do next. So it is a lifelong journey and the, the skill that you build around listening to yourself and being true to yourself, that's 
that's the place to put focus, not on getting the right answer, because there is no right answer. You can check out more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.